Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the second half of the program, about half an hour away, we're going to talk with Frank Hugelmeyer, president and CEO of the Outdoor Industry Association. That's an association which in the past has threatened to poll their outdoor retail show if Utah did not change some of its policies and... Their leading voice uh, hoping to expand Canyonlands. They want surrounding areas around Canyonlands to be designated as a national monument to uh, protect uh, those lands from uh, off-road vehicles and other uh, what they see as abuses. But the latest news has the Outdoor Industry Association joining with Governor Herbert uh, as Governor Herbert has unveiled Utah's outdoor recreation vision. In the second half, we'll be talking with Frank Hugelmeyer of the Outdoor Industry Association. In the first half of the program, however, we're pleased to welcome in um, Grammy Award-winning composer and uh, violinist and uh, fiddler. Uh, at the age of 13, he uh, won uh, the uh, Grandmaster Fiddler Championship. He's a much sought-after session musician in Nashville, composer and educator. Uh, in fact, his O'Connor Violin Method is an American-themed alternative to the Suzuki approach. Uh, you no doubt know his music. Mark O'Connor joins us. A pleasure. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you. And uh, Mark O'Connor is in Logan for an event for the Kane College of the Arts, and uh, that's their uh, grand gala uh, for their uh, Arts Week. It's happening in the Kent Concert Hall in uh, Logan on the USU campus, and that is 7.30 um, on, uh, on Thursday. Uh, which uh, Tomorrow. Tomorrow. That's right. Tomorrow night, I'm going to play uh, my new piece called The Improvised Violin Concerto with the University Orchestra, uh, directed by Mike Bankhead. And it's uh, my newest piece, and I improvised the entire lead solo line on stage, and so it's completely different every time. The I just premiered it last year, and it will be uh, soon out on a DVD uh, premiered it in Boston Symphony Hall. So uh, I've played it several times already. I, I know it works <laughs> unbelievably, <laughs> so I'm really anxious to do it tomorrow night. This is improvised. You do it different every time? Yeah, it's completely different. Every single measure of the piece I invent on stage on my violin. Um, I've been improvising uh, as well as composing, as well as you know playing traditional music and new music since I was a kid. So mm-hmm. at this point in my life and career, improvisation is pretty second nature to me. Mm. I mean, I've been doing it on stage for 40 years, and I'm 51 now. And so I started as a kid. I was improvising. Well, you mentioned I won that Grandmaster Fiddle Championship when I was 13. I improvised some of that performance that won me that. Really? <laughs> yeah, not much of it. I mean, I had I had my own version, and I had it arranged, and, and I knew pretty much what I was doing, but not every note was buttoned down. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was making stuff up even at 13 on the stage. So that's how familiar I am with mm-hmm. improvisation. Though. I take some confidence. 13-year-old, you're in the competition, you want to win it. You, you might be nervous improvising. Well, I felt that improvisation and American music went hand in hand, that it didn't occur to me that it was any more difficult than playing in tune with good sound. I mean, I thought I I figured all of that was hard, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it wasn't like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna go stretch and then you know, and and uh, and uh, and sink. It felt like it was something that I I should do that was part of the music. That I felt like if I could pull that off, that would be impressive, especially at my age. Um, certainly, the older people uh, were more accomplished improvisers than me at age 13. Although I was, you know, technically pretty proficient at 13. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was. Obviously, good enough to win all those, uh, win over those masters. Um, that was the that was a stacked deck that contest. I, I I'm writing some memoirs, and um, that might have been one of the top contests in history where all the major competitors were actually entering. My own teacher Benny Thomason was in the field. He didn't make the top ten, mm. and he was one of the greatest. I mean, he was a little past his prime as a as a performer. But, I mean, my gosh. I mean, that was the kind of field it was. Yeah. Uh, growing up, you, I assume the music you listened to, you, you came up out of this American music, this Appalachian music, uh, became a session musician in, in, in Nashville. At some point, I don't know how early, crossed over. And then there is sort of in the minds of a lot of people that, that dividing line between this folk music and classical music, and you go comfortably between the two. 
I wonder when that started. It started um, in Nashville. Um, I, as I gained stature, I had more opportunities to meet new people. Um, people were begin, you know, beginning to be attracted to the music I was making in Nashville from classical music uh, environment. Um, I met top violinists. I met people like Itzhak Perlman and Yo-Yo Ma. I, I was playing with Yo-Yo Ma on stage at the Carnegie Hall in 1988 when I was still a full-time session player. I was playing with uh, my teacher, Stefan Grappelli. It was his 80th birthday celebration. So that, so that put me on stage with Yo-Yo Ma for those minutes. And then a conversation ensued for about 10 minutes. Then five years later, I'm in the studio with him, you know, uh, teaching him my Appalachia Waltz piece that I just composed and he's playing it. Hmm. So, um, so the, the irony, once you dive into my story a little bit and, and I'm going to write a lot more about this amazing, you know, kind of, um, uh, almost like, a I transported myself out of Nashville into classical music. Um, but it's an, it's an amazing story. But I, I, I also pulled along with it, my, my love of Appalachian music, bluegrass, country, jazz, swing, ragtime, blues. And I, I use that language in my modern composition. Hmm. This idea about these divisions, they certainly are there. If you go into a music store, of course, now it's online and you can just, and it's kind of blending online because you, you, you pull up whatever you like. But traditionally in the music store, you had divisions, different aisles for different music, uh, different publishers for different, uh, Agents, if you were going to have have a, these different careers, you've sort of blended it all. I went against the convention, um, and oddly enough, our history in American music um, is not that divisive. Um, it wasn't really until radio and records came along in the nineteen twenties and thirties that an industry was put on the table for everybody to look at and go. And people went, "Gee, there's money to be made here." Uh, we can, you know, target this music to this audience in 1930. Um, that was back when uh, they developed, uh, in the 1920s, they actually had a division called Race Records, where they would m- make records to to market to African-American audiences. Things like this. I mean, before that time, um, there was definitely a, a lot of political di- divisiveness, but when it came to music, people enjoyed music um, pretty much across the board. I mean, you had people like Thomas Jefferson, you know, playing fiddle music and then playing Mozart. Uh, and, and, and our presidents enjoyed a full range of music right from the very beginning, um, up through, you know, Lincoln. And then, you know, then when it became an industry, I think that's when people thought, oh yeah, we got to, you know, um, uh, you know, slice and dice, uh, the, the landscape a little bit and target marketing, uh, music came into, to Vogue. And I think American music, um, from my perspective, as far as how it intersects with classical music, became much harder to do. Um, it was even harder for Gershwin in, in the 1930s. He was experiencing some of that division. Mm-hmm. Um, my feeling, if like Gershwin would have lived in you know 1850 or something or or earlier, um, more people would have just you know in classical music at that time would have said, "Oh, this is amazing. Let's do more of it." Mm. But I think by that time, it was going to get harder and harder. Um, and so I wanted to do with my career and my music, I wanted to kind of correct some of those cultural mistakes that I feel that we, we made and and bring people together again. And, you know, um, there's no reason why a, a classical music uh, listener can enjoy, you know, uh, the blues or a hoedown or ragtime piece on the violin. It's natural to the instrument. It's got a history and a great tradition. And if it's played well, uh, and the music uh, is heartfelt and uh, and it's emotionally engaging, I mean, th- this should be part of the part of the conversation. Mm. We are talking with Mark O'Connor, celebrated violinist and composer. He is in Logan for an event tomorrow night for the Kane College of the Arts. It's a concert at the Kent Concert Hall, seven thirty uh, in the evening. Mark O'Connor will be performing. And uh, what will you be performing again? I'm going to perform my improvised violin concerto. It's got five different s- segments, five movements. And I based the theme um, and, and form of the piece on uh, the, the quintessential elements, the essential elements. And I add a fifth um, quintessential one called faith. 
So you have kind of like a journey through a scorched earth kind of manifestation um, that's very modal in the beginning and, and surreal. And as the peace develops, you know, humanity intervenes um, with our earth and the music becomes more passionate, emotional, and um, and faithful to our existence or future. And, and I wanted to... Um, embody that 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 kind of form that journey in the piece it's about 40 minutes it will take a a whole half and um the dvd cd will be coming out um for national distribution later this spring very good let's hear some music um i believe we've got um queued up open plains hoedown tell us about this we'll hear part of this this is my last big symphonic piece that i composed and recorded the Baltimore Symphony with uh, Marin Alsip. Um, recorded this, and this is uh, one movement from my symphony, a multi-movement symphony, a six-movement symphony. <clears throat> and this piece is based um, um, on my on a theme of my own Appalachia Waltz. This is a uh, hoedown. This rep- this represents um, actually uh, uh, the West um, coming across the plains uh, and. Uh, uh, and I, my symphonic interpretation of that journey. Let's hear uh, part of this music of Mark O'Connor. Unfortunately, don't have time for all that piece. We want to fit in another piece or two of uh, Mark O'Connor. We're talking with Mark O'Connor, celebrated uh, fiddler and uh, composer and uh, teacher. He is in Logan for an appearance with the Kane College of the Arts, a, a concert tomorrow night, 7.30 in the Kent Concert Hall, before performing his music, of course, um, and Mark O'Connor on, on stage performing. We're uh, pleased to have Mark O'Connor with us for another 10 minutes. You are welcome to join us uh, with your question or comment for Mark O'Connor, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or email upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. This particular piece of music, Hoedown, uh, I wonder if you at some point in your composing process uh, think about Aaron Copeland. Do you, do you, <laughs> do you, does that flash into your mind or or other influences? Oh, yeah, well... Aaron Copeland is a huge influence. Matter of fact, I would even go to say, if it wasn't for Aaron Copeland, I don't even know if I would have composed for orchestra. Um, but say, but given that, hoedowns are what I grew up playing. Hmm. I mean, I, I knew hoedowns about as good as any other person in the country, probably. <laughs> um, so, you know, I knew many, many of them played them growing up. 
So I had a lot to draw from. Mm. Unlike Mr. Copeland, you 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 lived this. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's I mean that's something I can really bring to the table um, is that I I have a a knack for orchestration, but I also have a knack for writing melody and um, using our traditional language uh, in new forms in, uh, in new music writing, and so and being a you know a violinist and a fiddler, it puts me in that position to be able to do that. And and I want to see other creative violin players do that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why uh, you mentioned earlier my method. It's, it's the O'Connor method is to learn how to play the violin, um, you know, get the t- technique um, just the same as other methods, but with an additional component of creativity mm-hmm. uh, right from the very beginning. Um, it, it's, you know, it's not huge amounts, but it's incrementally, it, it, it exists in steps and a lot of it's very natural and organic, but is a part of the lesson. And it's my feeling that if you don't apply creativity towards your, towards your music, uh, lesson pretty early on, you're probably not going to end up being a good improviser and a good composer or band leader or anything else that requires a highly creative musician to be involved with. Um, that stuff, that's the, the, you know, improvisation, composing, that's also a language. It's, it's how you view music uh, f- through that prism. And so um, it's my suggestion that, um, you know, little five-year-olds or eight-year-olds or ten-year-olds learning to play a string instrument can also at the same time learn how to uh, improvise and compose a little bit along the way. But, you know, I mean, I don't expect everybody to turn into Mozart. But I think if we had um, more creativity in string in our string culture, um, you know, you would hear more things like the Open Plains Hoedown, people bringing in our American language. You know, jazz musicians do it wonderfully. You know, there's a lot of, you know, friends of mine, Bobby McFerrin and Chick Corea and uh, Pat Metheny. You know, they they make their own intersections into the to the classical arts field, um, and they're geniuses as well. Um, but I, I want to see more violent. I want to see more string players do that. Hmm. You, you would you call what you do the, the genre you're in American music? Is that what you call yeah. it? And what does that mean? Ameri- I mean, I specifically I call it American classical music, especially with orchestra. Um, anytime I'm kind of writing notes down on the page, I put now I put it. <laughs> I, I add the word classical to it. Um, I think classical defines music as. Uh, through what we call through composed music, where there's a couple of parts there. That's why uh, written jazz and and other things that are happening in in the in our uh, in the music field today could be considered classical music, uh, but not necessarily sound like Brahms. Um, and you know you have a lot of people like that. You know, um, Steve Steve Reich or people like that. You know, is in the classical or, or they're in the classical field. But I like the term American classical because it sounds very inclusive to me. Um, and, um, and Aaron Copeland and Gershwin and Bernstein and those folks were highly inclusive mm. composers. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with a celebrated violinist composer, Mark O'Connor. He's on the USU campus uh, to give uh, a concert uh, for the Kane College of the Arts, and that's tomorrow night, 730 Kent Concert Hall. They'll be performing, uh, he along with forces of USU will be performing, uh, uh his, his composition. Um, I wonder... You have written that you think Appalachian music is very rich because it has a lot of intersections. And intersections, I'm sure, are very interesting to you. You've, you kind of live at intersection mm-hmm. of, of many genres. And, um, and historically, it's been interesting to American musicians. Um, I call sort of like a, the age of specialization being the last couple of generations where we Kind of like got off on our uh, to our own and only like one thing somehow like that's not been really the spirit of of arts in America for the three or four hundred years that people have been here uh, you know coming from coming from Europe and and uh, Africa and other places in the world um, there's been kind of like a community of sharing music music has always been one of those things that I thought was very healing where like there could be a lot of divisiveness uh, in the public, in the government. Um, but when it came to playing music, it was like the, the time where we actually reached out to our brothers and sisters and said, hey, 
hey, I like that song you're singing. Teach me it. I want to sing too. Mm. I mean, that, that, that thing is very much a part of our own history too. And I want to bring um, the music, American music, um, especially in academic settings like the university here. I mean, I, I'm really excited to play uh, with the orchestra because I, I not only get to play my music, but I, I basically get to tell this story through my music saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here because people wanted to do this. People wanted to collaborate. People wanted a new experience with me. And I want a new experience with you, you know. So I think it's a good message. It's a good message for students, especially uh, young kids coming up. Um, and I think that the, the violin is a, a very special instrument. I don't think it's as hard as people think it is. I think it got this connotation th- through the years that, oh, my gosh, the violin is so difficult. I would say that the violin is no more difficult than any other instrument played at a top level. Um, and, and in some cases, I think the violin is actually easier for kids uh, than, say, the, the, you know, like if you're, if you're eight years old and, and someone said, what is going to be harder for that eight-year-old, a violin or a saxophone? I would say the saxophone would probably be harder. Mm. So, so I want to I get that message out there saying, hey, we can get a bunch of kids playing violin, and, and, and my method is, you know, is a way to do that. Are the skills the same going from, you might call it fiddle player, to a violin player? I think that's just a, a difference. If you're playing folk music or bluegrass, you call yourself fiddle player and violinist if you're in classical. But the, the technique, if you're, a, if you're a top-notch bluegrass fiddle player, does that translate over easily to playing classical music? It does, because the technique's the same. You have to move the bow up and down. You've got to put your fingers in the right place. Um, you've got to play with an, a good sound, good tone quality. Those qualities can change from music to music. When I play blues, I play a little more gritty. When I play a, a slow, beautiful ballad, I, I play more beautiful sounding. But that's the part of the language of the music. It's not, you know, I mean, yeah, you have to have good technique to achieve that kind of dimension and breadth in your playing. But basically, the techniques, the the found, you know, the fundamental techniques to learn how to play the instrument is the same. We use the same four strings, the same instrument. And what's the amazing story is not how different these things are, but the fact that we can do it all. We can actually play in the orchestra and then turn around and go sit in with the rock band or the hip-hop band mm-hmm. with the same instrument, the violin. And I think that that's where I want to get people thinking about. It's like not, not how different it is, but how amazingly similar it can be. And kids can learn to do it all. Mm-hmm. By the way, that, that's intriguing. Have, have you ever played? in a hip-hop or rock setting? Yeah, I have. And I got a lot of friends who are playing. Hip-hop violin is starting to really catch on. Hmm. Matter of fact, um, um, it is a, it's almost a go-to thing for, for a lot of kids coming out of uh, uh, conservatories in New York. You know, they uh, audition for a couple of orchestras and can't get in. And, and they go, hey, let's put a band together. Right. So that's part of the creativity. We, 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 you know, we have a lot of ingenuity in our in our you know our system our DNA and I want people to apply that to the violin you know is you know if um, the violin could be in any place matter of fact I would say there's you know I watched the CMA awards this year <laughs> there's probably <laughs> there's probably more violin uh, at the Grammys than at the country music awards <clears throat> um, which is funny to think about so these things come in eb- ebbs and flows um, but it, but it means that you know anything's possible. Hmm. We just have a couple minutes left. Um, uh, people might be interested in in uh, learning your composing process. You were interviewed for the New York Times, and you've got this on your website, which is by the markoconnor dot com, I believe, and markoconnorblog.blogspot.com. dot com. Um, apparently, you don't sleep a whole lot at night, and you, and and you do a lot of composing, including listening to a lot of CNN and then just kind of have the news on the background. I don't know if that, that helps the rhythm of the composing. <laughs> okay, let me get, okay, let me put this in sequence. <laughs> when I go to sleep late at night, um, oftentimes the, the TV will still be playing mm. and I'll have been watching CNN or something. And it will just kind of continue and I and I leave it on. Um, because my my mind races so much at night about music, music I've been working on. And sometimes the music that I'm hearing in my brain is so much louder 
than the actual sound coming out of a television or a radio. So it actually drowns out some of my own, you know, mind racing with my musical phrases. It's a little maddening. I'll have, you know, but this article that the New York Times did on me um, followed me around for a day and they really wanted to to get into my <clears throat> the particulars of my daily life to see how I, you know, how I, you know, see how this guy ticks, I guess. Um, they were asking me where I went and uh, what kind of food I ate. And it was interesting. I can't believe how many people read it and and how people were interested in these sort of humdrum parts of my life um, that go to making what I do. Um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where you got to pitch yourself going, well, well, people really do, you know, <laughs> are interested in what I, what I do for, you know, dinner. And, but it was really fun to have the New York Times uh, do that. Finally, there, there was something intriguing here. Uh, you talk about an uh, herbal additive. You, you, you say it's cleansing. Yeah. yeah. And then you went on to say composing is cleansing. Yes, I think the the creative spirit is um, is a great healer, and that's another thing that I I would love for um, music students to be able to be a part of is that is that I want and 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 I and, and one of the objectives of my method is that I want kids to learn the music out of the book to the point where they feel it's their music. It's not the music out of the book. It's not the music that the teacher wants. It's like their music, and that's a part. Of, of creativity, I want um, people to feel like an ownership to the music they have. It's not always the music that, from the guy in Europe that had the white wig from 1700s, um, although that's uh, you know very important. It's not everything, and and so that's why I wanted to talk about that. How the creative ideas in music. I mean, I know songwriters, for instance, or creative band musicians who would not trade their life for anything and they're broke and you know i mean it, you know money is not going to buy a lot of my friends happiness is the is the chance the opportunity to share music be uh you know i know musicians that you know they would be in a band if it paid them you know 50 bucks a night for the rest of the way um and you got to hand it to them those those people um are are satisfied with their with their life and I think music and the creative process helps that, satisfica- that satisfaction. Um, I think music, music students and people in general could learn a, a lot from that experience. We've been talking with Mark O'Connor, uh, of course, Grammy Award winner, uh, celebrated uh, violinist, uh, fiddler, and composer. And uh, he is in Logan for an event tomorrow night. That's a concert with... Uh, uh, Utah State University <clears throat> uh, music students, and he'll be uh, performing as well. Before performing his his work, what piece again will be performed? The improvised violin concerto. It's a it's a brand new piece, about forty minutes. Um, the The names of the movements are the first movement is fire, and then it uh, goes to air, then water. Then Earth is the fourth movement. Then Faith is the final movement of my mm-hmm. symphonic piece. Mark O'Connor on stage on the campus of Utah State University. Kent Concert Hall, 7.30 tomorrow night. I'm sure tickets are available still for that. Uh, and that is uh, in conjunction with the Kane College of the Arts at Utah State University. Uh, let's, um, let's go out with another piece. This is uh, Simple Gifts. Tell yeah. us a little bit about this. Speaking of Copeland, we talked about Copeland earlier. Um, Simple Gifts is a piece that um, that came out of the Shaker um, uh, uh, community in Maine, uh, seventeen late seventeen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds, and it was a theme that Copeland uh, found through Martha Graham for his big piece. Um, and I wanted to use that theme as well in my method, book three, and I arranged. Um, a violin solo around the Simple Gifts melody. It's one of my favorites. Well, let's hear a minute or so of this, and we'll have a break. And uh, then we're going to be talking with Frank Hugelmeyer, president and CEO of the Outdoor Industry Association. Uh, Governor Herbert has unveiled 
uh, Utah's outdoor recreation vision. We'll be talking with Mr. Hugo Meyer about that in the second half of the program. Uh, Mark O'Connor, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Previously on Car Talk. <laughs> I got to Chicago for a career and a, and a girl. I lost the girl and I've given up on the career. Soccer home. <laughs> <laughs> you made me spit my coffee all over the table. <laughs> Join us for more keen yet sensitive analysis this week on Car Talk. Saturday morning at 10, repeat Sunday evening at 5. Support for you. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, celebrating 20 years this season with the Imago Theater production of Zuzu, combining animals, acrobatics, and miming in a French-influenced avant-garde playground. January 28th at 7.30. Information is at ellenecclestheater.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We make a transition from music to the outdoors, and we bring in Frank Hugelmeyer, president and CEO of the Outdoor Industry Association. They've uh, uh, put out a press release um, uh, lauding a a new uh, outdoor recreation vision for Utah. The governor unveiled this at the Outdoor Retailer Winter Market Trade Show. And we're going to talk about this and other issues regarding the outdoors Mr. Hugelmeyer, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, so uh, this is an outdoor recreation vision. Tell us in brief what, what this is. Well, the governor unveiled a, uh, a vision for the state yesterday uh, that makes outdoor recreation a higher priority in Utah. And it is truly an unprecedented step by any governor of any state uh, because uh, outdoor recreation is often overlooked as a economic sector or, or a specific uh, economic engine. Often, you think of uh, when you think uh, about your economics of a state, you often, often think about maybe energy. Maybe you're thinking about telecommunications. You might be talking about uh, um, renewable energy. You might be thinking about aerospace, etc. Outdoor recreation is often folded within the tourism component of a uh, many uh, states around the country, but it, what that doesn't include is the great innovations that come out uh, and the uh, entrepreneurial spirit of what is a very dynamic industry uh, of outdoor brands and retailers who who serve this industry and inspire others uh, to go outside and play. Um, and in fact, what we have found is that many of these great um, great companies that produce these terrific products, uh, we're trying to get them to be more active in local politics and to help uh, policymakers understand how dynamic and important this sector is. And uh, we began that conversation with the governor uh, over the past year. 
and um, he took it to heart and uh, uh, what's happened is uh, yesterday there was a, a terrific uh, press conference that I had the honor to be part of where he prevent, uh, presented a vision for outdoor recreation in Utah and uh, and why this is important. It had a wide variety of, of recommendations and guiding principles on how uh, the state should view this economic sector and how it should protect and conserve lands across Utah so that it could help continue to grow um, the, w these assets, these natural areas and recreational lands, which are foundational to Utah's economic future. Part of the reason this uh, stands out, and of course it stands out on its own merits, but uh, this is an area of, uh, seems to be an agreement between the outdoor industry and the governor and the Republicans in Utah, where the history has not been of such agreement. Well, I, I think everyone can agree that uh, protecting America's parks, waters, and trails is, uh, is important and that protecting uh, the economy and the communities and the people whose lives depend on having access to the great outdoors is, is, is a critical mission for, for a, a great quality of life in any community. Um, so uh, I think what we have found as we've worked with Governor Herbert and other governors across the country, particularly the Western Governors Association, uh, which he is the current chair of, uh, that when you start to outline what the common themes are, uh, you can get a lot more consensus. And uh, that's really how we've gotten to where we are today. Uh, I think some of the specifics that are in this plan that are extremely exciting and positive, um, and they represent a tremendous leap forward between the outdoor industry and Utah, because it's our goal to demonstrate that our industry and Utah leadership can collaborate to openly, productively, and, and respectfully turn this from a vision into reality. And that's it, creating an office of outdoor recreation, uh, appointing a director of outdoor recreation in the state, convening an annual summit on the economics and the needs of conservation around the state, and requiring that outdoor recreation is in the general plans and 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 local recreation uh, plans and, and economic plans uh, of local communities. And the reason I think a lot of the controversy that you referenced has occurred is because there hasn't been a strategy uh, within the state. And by outlining a strategy and a vision, uh, we get a lot closer to creating business certainty for us and for other economic sectors. Do you think uh, this is obviously a good beginning? Do you do you think this will be sufficient to resolve very real conflicts that you and I have both made reference to? Uh, you know, House Bill One Forty Eight, demanding uh, return of federal lands to Utah. Uh, it, it seems like the the push to um, ask President Obama to designate uh, land surrounding Canyonlands National Park as, as national monument, uh, you know, Greater Canyonlands, that seems to be a bone of contention with with some politicians in Utah. Do you think this will uh, help get to a resolution on some of those issues? Well, it, it, you know, what's not in the vision is is uh, uh, some of those challenging issues that you just resolved are, are not. Uh, they remain un unresolved in the vision, um, and they will remain unresolved if the vision isn't put into action. And uh, and so we, it, it, since we started on this journey six months ago, uh, it would be unrealistic for us to expect uh, that we would be able to resolve what have been very contentious issues in the state for many years. Uh, but I think the framework to resolve those issues are now in that vision. And and that's what we, uh, in our discussions with the governor, what we raised is uh, the reason we do believe in protection. Uh, the governor uh, does believe that there are areas around the state that need to be protected. Uh, what we don't have is a clear view and a map and an inventory of where are the areas that there will be development, uh, where will there be mixed use, and where will they be protection, and that's actually one of the goals stated in the vision uh, for this Office of Outdoor Recreation and the Director of Outdoor Recreation to pull together and present. I think once we have, uh, uh, and, and many in the outdoor industry as well as in the conservation community can see that the areas that they care about are on the list, 
uh, I think it's going to diffuse a lot of the tensions that have uh, occurred in and across the state for many years. Hmm. Uh, you said earlier that uh, you're encouraging the the association is encouraging their members to get more involved in the political process. Do you uh, what would you like to 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 see happen? Well, outdoor recreation is big business uh, across America. It, it generates six hundred forty six billion annually in direct consumer spending. Uh, it supports six point one million jobs across the U.S. Uh, it generates $80 billion in annual state and national tax revenue. Uh, that's consumers, American consumers spend more on outdoor recreation than on pharmaceuticals each year or on cars. That gives you an idea of the scale of how important this industry is as a segment of the American economy and every state in the union. However, right now, only one state has an economic strategy around driving and building and growing the outdoor recreation economy and all of the businesses that are within that sector. And only one state now has a vision around how they plan to build out and conserve lands, uh, both at the national, federal, state level, um, and that's Utah. So we have 49 other states right now that do not view outdoor recreation maybe segments of it they might recognize in tourism or retail, but um, they they do not realize that there is this tremendous economic engine that during, since 2008, when we saw the economic crisis uh, and the Great Recession, uh, outdoor recreation actually at that time began to grow. Uh, 5% a year uh, over the last five years, outdoor recreation has grown year upon year, and very few industry sectors can say that. And so it's important for our members, our companies, our executives, to start to engage policymakers to help them understand the true um, uh, size and scope and scale and power and promise of outdoor recreation in, in communities and around around uh, the entire country. And and they're the best ambassadors. They understand the business, and they can communicate that. So uh, this is why we're trying to get them more active in the political process, educate them on having greater and stronger relationships with uh, governors, senators, congressmen, because what we have found is that there is um, a, a lot of misinformation in terms of uh, both the size scope and the needs of the business community within our industry. We are talking with Frank Hugelmeyer, president and CEO of the Outdoor Industry Association. Governor Herbert uh, announced at the Outdoor Retailer Winter Market uh, Trade Show uh, yesterday a outdoor vision, uh, outdoor recreation vision for Utah. We're talking about that and other land use issues with Frank Hugelmeyer. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Uh, or you can email us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, you talk about the uh, economic uh, impact in uh, Utah and other states of the Outdoor Industry Association, the fact that it's growing, uh, both indisputable facts. Uh, also, on the on the other side, and some see this as a, uh, a conflict uh, that perhaps is unresolvable, the extractive industries developing uh, these lands. You talk to some county commissioners, and they will tell you that we need to continue the growth in extractive industries to, uh, to keep our economies going, and uh, even... Uh, if, I think some would tell me uh, that, that we have to balance it a little more toward extraction over preservation, which might help the uh, Outdoor Industry Association. I wonder where you come down with that. Well, I think it's it's balance, and I, you see that in the vision of the governor, and we agree with that. Uh, it's not an either-or. If you look at outdoor products, uh, many of the products are made out of, out of petroleum. Uh, you have we're asking our customers to get in their vehicles and and pile them up with gear and go out and camp and fill in up their Coleman stoves with uh, with gas and and so there there is a a interdependence here and a balance but it's it, it I don't believe and I don't think many in the industry believe that it's an either or choice uh, you need uh, a balanced economic strategy within a community 
And what we do know is that if you look in, in the state of Utah alone, outdoor recreation fuels tremendous economic activity. It's uh, 65,000 jobs. It contributes $4 billion annually in retail sales and services and, and nearly $3 million in annual state and tax revenues. Those are often overlooked when uh, there tends to be just an energy conversation. And I think in Utah specifically, there's been a – and how our this vision around the governor's vision for outdoor recreation came about is he had a sit-down with us and, and, and – we highlighted that there was a 10-year strategy for energy, uh, and and he expressed his strong desire that there be balance. And we said, but you don't have a strategy for outdoor recreation, so we're having trouble seeing the balance in this conversation. Um, and so I think that by having these two offices of both energy and of outdoor recreation, by being able to bring together education and conversation around the contentious issues, I think uh, the competing needs uh, are, are going to be better addressed. I will say that uh, in terms of job creation, uh, we need to do a better job of telling our job story. Um, uh, if you look at energy across the country, you have around 2.3 million jobs in, in the energy field. In outdoor recreation, we have 6.1 million direct jobs. Those are those are good-paying, high-quality jobs. The best jobs in this industry are here in America. The the great brands that create um, uh, technological advances that do uh, design and innovation and uh, have strong IT roles and uh, that's, those are often overlooked. Um, and so it's a very very dynamic industry that's nearly three times uh, the size of um, uh, other competing uses on public lands. And so there does have to be a stronger balanced message, but it doesn't have to be an either-or. Um, and often what we've heard, particularly in Utah, is that um, that, that uh, this is taking away my job or these potentially higher jobs. And it, it is actually a false argument, in, in our opinion. Outdoor recreation is not the cause of a boom and bust economy within the energy field. That has happened for years across the country. Um, there's, uh, it's due to the, the large commodity um, pricing and issues around the globe that really impact that. Um, we're not the cause of that. We're actually the recovery and the balance within a community in an economic strategy. And once communities start to realize that it, it doesn't have to be a choice. Uh, they can benefit by both. Um, you see those communities flourish. Uh, I want to uh, follow up on, um, there are periodic threats from the uh, uh, industry to uh, take the, the trade show elsewhere. Of course, this brings in a lot of money to, to Salt Lake City. And I'm wondering, this, this latest one, in uh, just last year, wh what the particular the biggest concern that the industry had uh, to to go so far as to threaten to take the trade show elsewhere and and has that concern been resolved well i first off i think the threats were overblown in the media uh i can i can tell you that was my personal <laughs> opinion uh but uh, we do have challenges around the trade show the trade show we've been in in utah for 15 years here in salt lake uh, it's uh, outdoor retailer, which we're the title sponsor of, has been um, growing at a, a very significant rate. When you look at the growth of the industry, um, being an economic powerhouse, uh, we after at 2008, most trade shows at that time uh, shrank around 40 percent. It was a big hit to trade show business around the country. Outdoor retailer did not have that problem. We continued to grow, and that's largely because American consumers um, we're in the meaningful biz the business of meaningful experiences. We provide um, great stress release, uh, tremendous uh, uh, family activities, and in times of stress like the the Great Recession, uh, you start to you start to see Americans come back to the outdoors, and they did in, in droves, and they continue to because in uncertain times, uncertain political times, 
it, it really drives our economic growth. We're part of creating a healthy uh, quality of life, uh, not only in Utah, but, but across the country. And that drove the growth of outdoor retailer and has over the last several years. And so what's happened is we've gotten to a point where the logistics of the city um, have not been able to keep pace with the growth of the trade show. And uh, we've outgrown the convention center in the summertime where we've needed pavilions built. Uh, and we didn't have certainty about whether we'd be able to ha- uh, occupy the church parking lot that, that housed those pavilions or whether we would have enough hotel rooms to even be able to keep the show here because there were more attendees, over 25,000 each trade show, and more than 40 million that is brought into the city every year um, in in direct spending. Um, we just simply didn't have the space for attendees to show up, and so we've been working with the local community uh, to resolve those issues. And at the same time, we had some contentious um, challenges from a legislative standpoint. Uh, stream access was uh, was was uh, d- uh, was denied in some areas for. Fisher and uh, fishermen and and sportsmen and and uh, and river rafters. We had the contentious lawsuits around the RS two four seven seven roads. We saw the uh, again uh, the threat of a lawsuit around the uh, state control of federal lands, and all of this sort of convened at the same time. And so the real issues around keeping the trade show here for the long term are, are the big logistical issues. Uh, we feel we're on a very good path right now of trying to uh, uh, resolve the more contentious issues on the public lands and um, uh, with this vision that the governor has just announced. We are uh, out of time. Uh, the, some of these issues, I'm sure, will be ongoing, but uh, a hopeful beginning for some resolution, perhaps. Outdoor Recreation Vision Plan was uh, unveiled yesterday by Governor Herbert at the Outdoor Retailer Winter Market Trade Show. And we've been talking about this with Frank Hugelmeyer, President and CEO of Outdoor Industry Association. Mr. Hugelmeyer, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It was nice talking to you.